or register. Before I share a couple of things with you, uh, turn to the person who was sitting right beside you and shake their hand and say, thank you for sitting beside me tonight. Okay, that's it. Maximum of two. You can't be sitting next to three people. Young adults, many of you are here tonight. Many in the 10.30 service. We have a brochure. If you haven't seen this, this is for you to take and to consider tonight. Our young adult leadership team has uh, come to an end. We've had about four people who have been serving us over the last few years and they have now concluded their uh, position and declared vacant and so we are looking for either them and or others to form a new leadership team. There is a brochure available tonight and you can get a copy of that like it is on the screen and the purpose of this is not for you to self-nominate but for you to preferably think about who would be a good young adult leader in our church and for you to approach them and having approached them for them to agree and if they agree then for you to fill in the form and to hand that in to me and then we'll contact them and follow them through. So we have some of those available tonight and it's an important area of development in the life of our church. So I commend that to you. I'll chase you around after the service. We have those available for you. Pastor David and family are back, having been away at the snow. Was it a great weekend? Didn't break anything? Had a wonderful time? Excellent. Just did this morning. But we're glad that you're back with us tonight. Um, my granddaughter, I had a birthday yesterday. I was 50 again. What? Hmm. On Thursday I was sharing with the craft people who are older. And Janet reminded them that she could remember when we had a celebration of my 50th as a church. I said, thank you very much for giving away my age. She said, it's okay, it was a long time ago. <laughs> so yesterday, my birthday, my granddaughter rang me. Why did chicken cross the road? <laughs> to get to the other side. Isn't she funny? Why did the cat chase the chicken? Not a chicken tonight. <laughs> She's gifted, I tell you. How do you make a sausage roll? Push it. She is a talent and a half. Almost four. She'll be four on the 19th of August. Eleanor is her name. Gifts will be received and sent to her this week. We come tonight to a passage, Hebrews chapter 7, which won't take long for us to work our way through. It's reasonably clear and simple, isn't it? Steph read it to us. I'm going to ask you to bear with me in prayer and to ask God's blessing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are the God who watches over us, orchestrating the circumstances and the events, the coincidences, 
even the planned events of our life. And in each and every circumstance, you are inviting us to be aware of your presence. In the good times, to rejoice and to praise you. In the difficulties, to look to you and to trust you. So Heavenly Father, we find ourselves here again tonight with one another in the presence of your people, looking to you, asking for your spirit to teach us, to enlighten us, to remind us, not just to inform us, but certainly to nudge us forward to becoming passionate followers of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for all the great things, the wonderful things that you provide for us. We thank you for your word. And we ask tonight, Lord, that you would open our minds our eyes to see, our hearts and wills to receive and our lives to be transformed that we might bring honour to the Lord Jesus for it's in his name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 8 asks the question, With what shall I come before the Lord? With what shall I bow before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn son for the sin of my soul? How do we please God? When I was 17, I was not raised in a family that knew or followed the Lord Jesus. At the age of 17, I started asking very serious questions, as many of you have already asked and been aware of. Is there life after death? If there is, how do you know? And what is it like? Where is it? Is God real? And if he is real, what is he like? And how do we... Please, God, what does he want us to do? What does he require of us? Very significant question. Humankind has always had this innate desire, this awareness that there is a superior being, which is why in a crisis most often, not all, but most often people will fall to their knees and cry out to God. You know, why? even hardened atheists, those who say they are atheists anyway, will often cry out to the God they say they don't believe in. Not all. There are exceptions. Anthropologists tell us that in every culture that they have ever discovered, in every culture in history and throughout the world, there has always been a religious element. There's been a temple or a priesthood or a sacrificial system or some way of contacting God or the gods or the supreme beings that raise over them or however they choose to define it. Man has always felt this need to be right with God. Which makes sense according to the Bible story because in the beginning God made us in his image and placed us in a, a perfect place, the Garden of Eden, where we knew him. Adam and Eve knew him. And through their 
sin, through their sinful choice, through their disobedience, they get excluded from the garden. And ever since then we have this innate hunger to return, to want to be restored, to be reconciled to God from whom we are estranged. Every culture has a priesthood. Every culture has this religious religiosity, if you like, or a way of worshipping the God they understand. Well, in the Old Testament, the Bible tells us the story that God picked one bloke, Abraham, and that through him there would be descendants and eventually one of his descendants, Moses, God gave these specific laws and God instituted a priesthood and the priesthood was to do, out of all of the 12 tribes, God picked this one tribe, the tribe of Levi. And within that one tribe, three families, God picked one family, family of Aaron, and said, you will be the priests, the others will be the helpers. This tribe will be the tribe that will lead all the other tribes of Israel in their worship of me. That was inbred, it was taught, it was accepted for centuries. It's the way it was. The particular rituals, the particular uh, garments that the priests would wear, the particular functions that they would perform, all outlined. All, by the way, full of symbolic meaning, pointing forward to somebody else. Not an end in themselves, but a, do, a way of communicating spiritual truth to a nation which was in kindergarten in which they needed to grow up. The author of Hebrews is writing to a group of people who are followers of Jesus who have come out of that sort of background where they're used to the temple and the priests and the sacrifices and the holy days and all of the rituals and all of those sorts of things. And now having come to understand at least in some simple form or embryonic form about the person of Jesus, they are in the, the wrestle between is all of that wrong and that Jesus is the only way or should we go back that way? How does this fit together? What does God require of us? What does God want for us? God said that stuff about Aaron and the priesthood and everything else. So how does Jesus fit into this? That's part of the background to the book of Hebrews, to what the author of Hebrews is trying to address. There's particularly Hebrew Christians who have become followers of the Lord Jesus. If Jesus is the real priest, as he has said from chapter 4 on, then to a Jewish person the question would be, well how can that be? He doesn't come from the right tribe. Jews not from Levi, he's from Judah. So how can he be a priest? That's the question he wants to address in this chapter. And particularly to show not only is Jesus a priest, but he is a superior priest. And God told us that way back in the beginning buried it, gave us a hint gave us a little clue which you may have missed as you read through the Old Testament but it's there 
the Lord Jesus is a priest. Not just a priest, but he's a better priest, he's a greater priest. And in fact, not just better and greater, in him, all the other stuff, temple, priesthood and sacrifice, all abolished. It's all done away with. It's now obsolete. It's now redundant. That's kind of like monumental change for these people. Significant, huge change. So we're going to work our way through chapter 7 to see what his arguments are for us who lived almost 2,000 years later. We know the Lord Jesus when he was on earth, God's son, as a prophet. He came to reveal the ways of God. He told us about God. He revealed the truth of God. God has spoken to us through him. We know that one day, someday, perhaps soon, he will return. When he returns, he'll come as king. He will set up his kingdom. He will rule and reign. We are divided over whether it's going to be for a thousand years or whether it's going to be, you know, for eternity. Either way, he returns and rules. The king. When he was here as a prophet, when he returns as the king, now in between, between when he was here and between when he returns, he's a priest. He's in heaven, right hand side of God, praying for us, interceding for us pleading for us. He is the ultimate sacrifice who can atone for our sins. In chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews, verse 14, says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold firmly to the faith we profess. The author is wanting us certainly his original readers, to understand who Jesus is and what he has done. And we get caught up in that sort of presentation tonight because when Jesus was here on earth, he certainly never went to the temple. He certainly never wore the priestly robes. He never presented a sacrifice. He didn't work at the altar or the laver. He didn't go to the table of showbread or the altar of incense. He never went beyond the curtain like the high priest did. So how can Jesus be our high priest? Well, that's the argument. That's the issue the author wants us to begin to focus on. And before we come to the argument, let's jump to the conclusion. It's like reading the last chapter of the novel. Best thing to do sometimes. Chapter 7, verse 24, it says, Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. He's just not a priesthood temporarily but it's permanent for as long as he lives each priest lives their life you know three score years and ten seventy and then die and then they're replaced by another priest another priest another priest Jesus lives forever he's a permanent priest who lives to make intercession for us verse 25 therefore he is able if you mark your Bible that's worth underlining he is able He is able to save completely. He is able. Regardless of your circumstances or situation in life, He is able. He can save completely. Who can He save completely? Those who come to God through Him. Because He always lives to make intercession for us. Such a high priest meets our needs. He meets us 
at our point of need. He is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners. He is exalted above the heavens. Jesus is the one we need. That's the argument of the author of Hebrews. That's the truth we need to understand and embrace. We're reminded of again tonight. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. It's the only way. No other way. Can't be good enough. Can't be religious enough. Can't be moral enough. As Josh Tan reminded us this morning, we are all flawed. All of us. Not only flawed physically, but flawed internally. We can present a pretty good image to one another. We can pretend to be better than we really are. But the reality is, inside, all fallen, all broken, all sinful, all rebuilt. Not just in parts, but in entirety. All of us. That's why we need Jesus. We can't, we don't need a, a new life to start over, a new leaf, turn it over and let's start again because that's not good enough. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We are born in sin. We are predisposed to sin. We can't help ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We need someone outside of ourselves to save us. And God's provision for us is the person of his son, Jesus. The author of the Hebrews is writing to this group of people, people who have said, I want to follow Jesus, put up their hand. And he challenges them back in chapter 2 and he says, you guys are starting to drift from the word. You're getting off course. If you've watched any of the Olympics and the sailing particularly, then you'll know the effect of that, of drifting, not maintaining the direction you ought to go in. Chapter 3 and 4, he talks about those not only who were drifting from the word, but those who were doubting the word questioning it not committing themselves to it and last week we spoke about those who have become dull to the word not responding as they ought so he's keen to write to them to say this is very important for you to understand very important for you to embrace and very important for you to commit yourself to continuing to do this Jesus whom you have heard about who you have committed yourselves to is the way, the truth and the life. There is no other way. He is the high priest. He replaces all other religious ritual, ceremony. Well, what's the proof? Well, he does something rather remarkable. I don't know if you'd read many crime fiction novels. My wife reads a fair few of them. I read a few, not many. But I do like Sherlock Holmes particularly now that it's on DVD. And Sherlock Holmes, unlike many, well, I can't speak because I haven't read many, but of those that I have read, 
Sherlock Holmes, you better pay attention to the detail. You better pay attention to the characters who introduce, because when a character is introduced, you need to remember who they are and what they did and what they said and where they went, because they could very well be the person who's going to be the criminal, the killer. You've got to pay attention to the details. It's a bit like that when God's written the Old Testament. And it's a bit sneaky of the Lord, but he did it, and he reveals it here. So when Genesis was written, there was a character who is mentioned who is very unusual. Genesis is filled with people and filled with genealogies. You know, somebody was the father of somebody, was the father of somebody or whatever. Um, but in the beginning of Genesis, chapter 14, there is this character who just suddenly is introduced, comes on stage, does something, goes off stage, and it's like, what was that about? Genesis 14. It's the passage where Abraham, called by God to be the founder of a new community, a new covenant people, separated from Lot, Lot's been captured and Abraham gathers an army together of 318 trained men and goes off and rescues him. Now you have Abraham, father of faith, returning victorious, filled with spoils from the war, his names resonating throughout the Middle East. Everybody's talking about Abraham. And on his way back, Abraham returned from beating, um, this is Genesis 14 verse 17, returned from defeating Kedo Laoma and the kings who were allied with him. Yada, 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 yada. Verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hands. Abraham, hero of the moment, called by God, blessed by God, resourced by God, recognises immediately in this unknown to us individual, Melchizedek, someone who is superior, someone who is greater than him. And then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything that he had. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. When he meets Abraham, he reveals to Abraham, the father of the faith, a new name for God, God Most High. A new revelation for Abraham. Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham presents to him a tent. That's the story. The story moves on. And you think, well, that was interesting. Until later on, a thousand years later in Jewish history, you have David, who is now the king. And David, at the height of his kingdom, 
who was a man after God's own heart, who wanted to do things God's ways, who resourced as much as he possibly could uh, the priesthood and he really wanted to build the temple but he was forbidden because of his own life experiences and circumstances. But nonetheless he called the people to make lots of offerings and he gathered together heaps of resources. It's this David who in Psalm 110 writes this. So it's a bit like the law that Moses gave and the political priesthood and the kingship now that God had established is almost reaching its pinnacle. It's going to ascend just a little bit in Solomon and then begin to plummet. It's on its ascendancy in David. So almost at its zenith, God gives this insight, this revelation. Psalm 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your scepter and so on and so on. Verse 4, The Lord has sworn, the Lord Yahweh, sovereign Lord on high, whose word is immutable, that what he says is unchangeable. And he says, I swear, I promise, and I will not change my mind. You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. thousand years later after the tribes of Israel, after Aaron's priesthood has been in place there's another priesthood which the people of God are reminded of according to the order not of Aaron but of Melchizedek this Melchizedek who was king of Salem priest of God most high met Abraham, blessed him received tithes from him there's another priesthood that God had hidden mentioned in passing brought onto the stage and then left a clue to the future that's what the author of Hebrews is reminding us of and he says that Melchizedek is a picture an outline, a frame of the high priest who was to come just like David was foretaste of the king who was to come in Jesus. So Melchizedek is an outline, a picture, a hint of the priest, the high priest who was to come. Jesus. Chapter 7. He says that the Lord Jesus, chapter 6 verse 20, he has become, the Lord Jesus has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth for everything. Well, we read that, Genesis 14. First, the author says, his name means king of righteousness. Melech, king. Zedek, righteousness. Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And then also, he is the king of Salem. Nobody knows where Salem is. Most people say it's Jerusalem. Either way, the author interprets for us, he is the king of peace. King of righteousness, king of peace. Righteousness in peace. 
in one person, pointing forward to the Lord Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who on the cross buys righteousness for us, pays for our sin, who is the one who restores peace for us with God. He is the King of Righteousness and the King of Peace. Chapter three, verse seven. Chapter seven, verse three in Hebrews. The author of Hebrews, being a typical Jew, does well. What I understand to be a typical Jewish way, he's now reading the white bits of the Old Testament, not the black bits. He's reading what's not written, because the book of Genesis doesn't mention his father, doesn't mention his mother doesn't mention his descendants, doesn't mention when he died, doesn't mention when he was born, draws this conclusion, which to us may sound a bit like a long stretch, but to the Jewish people this is quite acceptable way of reading and understanding their Old Testament. Chapter 7 verse 3, Melchizedek is without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, he is like the Son of God who remains a priest forever. Now to us, in our Western mindset, it's a long stretch. But to the Jewish people, to their way of reading the scriptures, this was an acceptable way. His father is, if we put it from our Western perspective, the Holy Spirit deliberately does not mention father, mother, genealogy, doesn't mention the day he was born, doesn't mention the day he was born, deliberately. So you can draw that conclusion. It's like, here is a hint. Somebody just appears. And certainly throughout history, you know, people have come up with different versions and different interpretations, but I take it to be that Melchizedek was simply a historical figure and these things are not recorded of him. In order that he might be like Jesus, the eternal Son of God. And then the author says, just think how great Melchizedek was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. And then he goes on to draw a conclusion from that, basically saying, we present tithes to the Levitical priests because that's what God wanted us to do. The law commanded it. But here is Abraham doing it before there was a law. He did it spontaneously because he recognised in Melchizedek something of greatness. And Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And everybody knows the greater blesses the lesser. And the author is wanting us to understand Melchizedek is a picture. And Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. He's greater than Aaron. He's greater than the priests of the Old Testament, the sacrificial system. He is preeminent and he is permanent. He goes in verse 8 and he says, um, the tithe was collected by people who died, the priests. But in the other case, by him who was declared to be living. Melchizedek receives the tithe and he's never, we're never told that he died. Hence, 
is beyond death. The author is trying to demonstrate for us that Jesus is our high priest, not according to the tribe of Levi, not according to the Old Testament law, but according to the hints that God gave in Genesis and reiterated a thousand years later in the Psalm 110 with David at its zenith. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's a greater priest. Basically, then goes on to say that while Jesus is like this high priest, Melchizedek, he supersedes and bypasses all that has gone before. So, why would you want to return to the temple, to the priest, and to the sacrifices? That's his argument. That's his basic point. We've seen the movie Robin Hood with Russell Crowe in it. There's a beautiful scene in it where there's his dad had made a craft of his handprint and buried it in a concrete slab with a slogan on it. And from memory it's something like to rise and rise again until lambs become lions. Something like that. And Russell Crowe takes his hand and puts his handprint in it. It's a bit like that. That God has given us an imprint of a superior priesthood, Melchizedek. And Jesus puts his hand in it and he is the one who supersedes all that has gone before. He is the one who is to follow. Everything points forward to him. And that God in Psalm 110 has not only um, indicated this, but he's taken an oath that his priesthood will last forever and that God will not change his mind so to jump to the end the priest the author of Hebrews says therefore Jesus is the priest we need he's better than all that we've had before he's better than all the priests with their garments better than the priests with their sacrifices better than the temple all of those are pictures which point forward symbolically which he hasn't explained to us yet, but he will go on in chapters to come to talk about those sorts of things, the sacrifice in the temple and the garments pointing forward to the Lord Jesus. He says, verse 24, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost completely those who come to God through him. He's the high priest that we need. All the other priests die. They're replaced generation by generation. Jesus never passes away. He is the one who has the ability to give us access to God. He enables us uh, to come to be friends with God. We say it this way, that Jesus is the one whom God has said, I would like to be friends with you. And I have appointed him, Jesus, to be the one to make the introduction. I want to know you. But I can only do it after he makes the introduction. That he comes between. He is the mediator. He is the high priest. He's the one who represents us to God and represents God to us. No one can surpass him or replace him. He is without substitute. He is and he always will be the only way to God. 
he paid the price for us and he prays for us. There is no other way. Verse 26 tells us, such a high priest meets our need. He is holy, blameless, pure, set apart, exalted above the heavens. He is the one who meets the meticulous, rigorous standards that God requires. And there is no other. In the words of the men's bloke stuff, Jesus is a good bloke. In fact, he's the best bloke. And he's the one that we need. Verse 27 and 28, the end of the chapter, he says, unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices uh, day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath, which came a thousand years after the law, appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest in the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, would go into the temple, the holy place. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest himself would offer the sacrifices. The other priests wouldn't. It was the high priest who did it. Firstly, he would offer a sacrifice for himself that I might be consecrated, that I might be cleansed, that I might be able to serve in this capacity. And then secondly, he would offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And he would enter, the high priest, once a year, day of atonement, and he alone would go behind the veil. No other priest could ever do it. No other priest was enabled to do it. But the Lord Jesus, who was a high priest after the order, not of Aaron, but of Melchizedek, he offers himself, not for his own sins, because he was sinless, but he offers himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, for all people, for us. And then in his resurrection, he ascends the mount. He ascends to heaven. And he enters the temple, not on earth, of which was a pattern and a symbol of what was above, but into the temple in heaven itself, where he enters the presence of God. And he not only goes behind the veil but he has rendered the veil that he by his sacrifice has made the way open into God's presence permanently but he is the only way there is no other way it's not about being good, it's not about being religious it's not about being moral, it's not about any of those sorts of things, it's about knowing Jesus, he is our high priest And he is the high priest that we need. And there is no other. Some of those concepts are difficult for us to understand because we don't live in that sort of world of ritual and ceremony and sacrifice. But at least we understand this. God is real. And we by our natural choices, our natural predisposition have sinned. 
drilled against him and continued to do so on a daily basis. We've erected a barrier between us and God. But God in the person of Jesus has now crossed the barrier. He's come into our world. And that it's only through Jesus that we can be reconciled to him. There is no other way. As the author of the chorus or the hymn says, there's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There is a way that is open and you can come in. At Calvary's cross, where the Lord Jesus died, at Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. The author of Hebrews is saying to his readers, don't give up following Jesus. Don't go back to the old ways, the temple, the priests, the old covenant. Continue to follow Jesus. He is the only way. He is the way that God hinted at in the Old Testament and he is the one who is fully revealed in the New Testament. He is the only saviour. He is the one we need to embrace. He's the one you need to embrace. Let me lead you in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are a God who is holy, just. He doesn't compromise his standards. But also a God who is merciful and kind and ready to forgive. That you offer forgiveness, restoration, eternal life to all who will repent who will change their minds who will acknowledge what they've been thinking is wrong and that what you say is right and who come to your son our high priest the Lord Jesus to promise forgiveness, restoration eternal life Heavenly Father, for many of us here tonight, we've already experienced this incredible gift of salvation. But perhaps there are some who are still to make that decision. So I pray, Lord, that you might work by your Spirit, you might draw to the Lord Jesus, so that we might continue to pursue him, to exalt him, for there is no other way. We can't be good enough. We aren't good enough. We need Jesus. So Lord, we thank you for him and pray that you might always fill us with a sense of gratitude and a passion, a desire to want to pursue him, to love him, to serve him and to obey him, never to abandon him, never to doubt, to disobey or to become dull. Lord, help us to embrace and to follow fully, devotedly, because he is our only high priest and he is certainly worthy. Lord, I ask these things in his name. Amen.